0: You're listening to a PowetCast, an audio netcast from TV, P-O-W-E-T dot TV. it. Welcome back. This is Sean Orange bringing you the second episode of our Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy
1: PowetCast. If
0: this is your first time tuning in, what the heck you doing here? Go back and listen to episode one. For those of you soldiering on, we are covering the Us version of the BBC radio production of Hitchhiker's. Uh reviewing for the first fit from the last episode and covering some of the differences between the radio version and the later versions. We're back with the Not Them Production crew, Thomas Martinson, Keith Everson, and Colin Ganyu. So I actually didn't meet Craig until after we got into recording the second fit and um, I don't you're even not know, likely to now. I don't know <laughs> I don't I don't know if I actually did anything with him until like fit four or five. So when I first heard his reading of Arthur I thought it sounded really good. It was appropriately wimpy.
2: Uh, yeah, uh, Craig's reading of Arthur was pretty good. Uh, the English accent was bad, but then again, all of our English accents are bad, so he fit right in. Uh, <laughs> and he'd done the original tape production, and uh, by way back when. So, uh, so he, w- he was Arthur in that version also? He was Arthur in that version. I did the book in that version, as as well as the forensics version.
0: As we mentioned last episode, uh, the BBC Radio version was the original, and so there were a lot of changes compared to uh, later versions, as well as the book. Um, One of those changes being in the first fit.
3: The scene in which Mr. Prosser is convinced to lay down in front of the bulldozer, um, in the original BBC radio version and in our recording, Arthur convinces Prosser to lay down in front of the bulldozer instead of Ford, as in the book and the TV version. And uh, Douglas Adams made the change because it was a remarkably lucid way for Arthur to think. And, you know, in the rest of the story, he, he spends most of his time being confused and not really knowing what's going on. Uh,
0: Another part that some people might have noticed was the inclusion of Lady Cynthia Fitzmellon christening the bulldozer that's supposed to tear down Arthur's home. Um, And actually, you guys have a pretty interesting story about that. First of all, when when Tom was writing the script,
3: um, as he said, he had a copy of the radio scripts, we actually scanned that into Keith's computer and used a text recognition program to convert it to a Word document. And the text recognition program, well, wasn't that good. And uh, the name of Lady Cynthia Fitzmelton became Cynthia Fitzmellon in at least one case. And when there was a T in her name, we thought it was a typo. So when we did our recording, it's ladies, Lady Cynthia Fitzmelon But later we discovered in the book that it's um, Fitzmelton.
2: And in the books, later on, it was cut. Her role was a deuce. She doesn't have any lines. She was cut. Just because uh, she, you know, you can establish that through simple narration in a book. But in a radio show, you actually have to, you know, have someone say it. And it, it didn't, I guess he, he went with this nice little speech, which is appropriately vapid and uh, nobleese. <laughs> it's, 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 it's actually a pretty funny bit. And it's uh, one of my strong performances. Thank you very
0: much. You did a very lovely job.
2: I, I think so.
0: Colin, as a sound editor, uh, has something interesting to add to that as well there's a sound effect at
3: the end of her speech of a bottle of champagne being broken against the prow of the very noble and worthwhile bulldozer. And uh, we searched all over the internet for a good bottle-breaking sound effect and couldn't really find anything we liked. So we found something we didn't like very much, and I argued, we actually argued at great length about using that sound effect. And my point was that, you know, the listener is is told by Lady Cynthia Fitzmelton that she's going to break the bottle against the bulldozer, and then they're going to hear the sound effect, so they're already expecting it. It doesn't matter that it's a crappy sound effect. No one's going to notice. So we used the crappy sound effect, and everybody notices.
0: Oh well. All right, and Fit the Second, this is the first uh, episode with Zaphod, which means it's the first one that I'm in. Why the decision to use two actors?
2: Douglas Adams did little notes about the, sc- the individual radio plays. And one of his original intentions was he wanted the second hand of Zaphad to ha- also have a different voice. He thought that voice would be French. Now, I didn't go in the French direction, besides I didn't really know anyone knew that much French, so besides me, and I didn't want to do it. <laughs> so uh, I figured it, uh, but I thought it'd be a great idea to incorporate that and probably one of the better ideas I've had in this process. And
0: uh, I had suggested Caleb because he had actually played Zaphad In our second forensics production um, of Restaurants at the End of the Universe*, if you listen to the credits, Tom actually forgets to credit Caleb for being actually what ends up being the primary head for Zaphod, which I believe was done prior to the decision to
2: to bring him in. Originally, Caleb, originally John was just gonna do Zaphod by himself. I wanted two heads, we got Caleb involved, and I'm very glad with how it turned out. But uh, apparently I didn't even notice that we made that mistake until, honestly, the other day when people told me. <laughs>
0: well, he's had eight years to forgive you, so I'm sure it's fine. Yeah. yeah we, we also brought in um, a bunch of other characters, of course, now that we're in outer space, so Trillian, Marvin, Eddie, and a bunch of others.
2: The idea was that when we got to these later fits, we basically rely on our friends to do these parts, our friends and our girlfriends. The results of said reliance are mixed at best, but, uh, you know, we introduced Eddie... Eddie the shipboard computer, which uh, Keith did to particular mania. Uh Zafog came in, Trillion, my ex girlfriend Alice uh, played Trillion. And uh and uh, what else did we do? Marvin, it's where Collins Marvin first enters, Zen. One of
0: the parts I liked in the second fit especially was Robert's turn as the Vogon Guard. Um is uh, kind of our, our Lon Chaney for this production here. <laughs> I got that uh, one. I know. <laughs> Robert's parts are typically some of my favorite for the entire project, along with Collins Marvin, which you had something to say about uh, accents earlier.
3: Right. Well, I'm I'm generally pretty happy with my performance as Marvin. And I'm pretty happy with the vocal effect that we did for it, but um, if you listen carefully to this fit, Marvin starts out really well and he ends really well, but there's there's a little bit in the middle where um, I don't know what was happening with my accent. Marvin suddenly went from sounding really good to suddenly being kind of cockney, which was not what I was going for. And he says things like, you know, let's build robots with genuine people personalities, they said, so they tried it out on me, which which wasn't what I was going for. It's sort of like, hello, governor, I'm very depressed. (laughs) (laughs) Not, Not
4: exactly what I intended. Um, yeah, and this is the first fit where you guys are subjected to me as a voice actor, which um I'm not <laughs> <laughs> um i'm I've always been kind of uh leery about my performances in this, but i guess I guess they're passable in particular. Eddie was easy for me because he doesn't show up very often, and a lot of it can be looped because he repeats a lot of things. <laughs> I
0: noticed going through some of the Raw files, preparing for this, that Craig actually wasn't present uh, for the, re- the recording of a lot of Fit 2 in that column. First performed his duties as Script
2: Boy. Yeah, this was the first time, this is actually probably the first time we started incorporating anything that's remotely professional about what we did. Uh, professional audio productions are all separate voices. It's very rare that you see two voices. Uh, occasionally, two main characters will perform together in like an animated movie or something. But it, that's still they're still separate booths. They're all segregated. It's very rare. We just kind of gather everyone around table and people talked. Well, one of the
3: things about recording like that, where somebody's not present and you have to drop their lines in later, is that. It makes it difficult to um, record something like The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy where frequently uh, the lines are written such that one person is talking and then suddenly somebody interrupts them. And you have to be really careful recording that because you know you can't have your stand-in being trampled by somebody else because then you have your stand-in talking when, when your real actor is supposed to be talking. And it just doesn't work well. We had a lot of problems with that.
4: When they arrive on Magrathea in the second fit... Um The cave thing was recorded actually with everybody there, and we experimented with doing the echo effect for the environment in practical ways. And while hilarious to watch, I'm sure, if we had videotaped it, which we didn't, (laughs) um, we didn't really get anything useful out of that as far as practical effects go so uh but yeah everybody was present for that recording as far as the cast was at that point
0: all right thanks guys and with that we are ready to present to you fit the second of us presents the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy feel free to check out the show notes at powett tv and keep up on current installments of this netcast enjoy the episode
2: presents The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams. Fit the second. After being saved from certain death during the destruction of the planet Earth, Arthur Dent is now forced to choose between certain death and the vacuum of space, or finding something pleasant to say about Vogon poetry. Starring Craig Webber as Arthur Dent, Sean Corse as Afar Beeblebrox, Alice Ecker as Trillian, Robert Randall as the Vogon God, Keith Everson as Eddie the Computer, Colin Ganyu as The Book and Marvin, and Thomas Martinson as Ford Prefect and the prosthetic Vogon Juts.
5: Far out in the uncharted backwaters of the unfashionable end of the western spiral arm of the galaxy lies a small, unregarded yellow sun. Orbiting this at a distance of roughly 90 million miles is an utterly insignificant little blue-green planet whose ape-descended life forms are so amazingly primitive that they still think that digital watches are a pretty neat idea. This planet has, or rather had, a problem, which was this. Most of the people living on it were unhappy for pretty much most of the time. Many solutions were suggested for the problem, but most of these were largely concerned with the movements of small green pieces of paper, which is odd because on the whole it wasn't the small green pieces of paper that were unhappy. And so the problem remained, and lots of people were mean, and most of them were miserable, even the ones with digital watches. Many were increasingly of the opinion that they'd made a big mistake in coming down from the trees in the first place, and some said that even the trees had been a bad move, and that no one should ever have left the oceans. And then, one day, nearly 2,000 years after a man had been nailed to a tree for saying how great it would be to be nice to people for a change, a girl sitting on her own in a small cafe in Rickmansworth suddenly realized what it was that had been going wrong all this time, and she finally knew how the world could be made a good and happy place. This time it was right, it would work, and no one would have to be nailed to anything. Sadly, however, before she could get to the phone to tell anyone, The Earth was unexpectedly demolished to make way for a new hyperspace bypass, and the idea was lost forever. Meanwhile, Arthur Dent has escaped from the Earth in the company of a friend of his who has unexpectedly turned out to be from a small planet somewhere in the vicinity of Betelgeuse. His name is Ford Prefect, for reasons which are unlikely to become clear at the moment, and they are both in dead trouble with the captain of a Vogon spaceship.
6: So, Earthlings, I present you a very simple choice. Be carefully! You hold your very lives in your hands. Now choose, either die in a vacuous space, or...
2: Tell me how good you thought my poem was. Actually, I quite liked it. Oh, good.
1: Oh, yes, I thought that some of the metaphysical imagery was really particularly effective. Oh, yes. And, and, uh, interesting rhythmic devices, too, which seemed to counterpoint the... The...
2: Uh, counterpoint the, um, the... Surrealism The underlying metaphor Of the um, Humanity um, Of the, uh, the Vulgonity of Vulgoni. the humanity, Sorry Of
1: the poet's Compassionate soul Which contrives Through the medium Of the verse structure To sublimate this Transcend that And come to terms With the fundamental Dichotomies of the other And what is left With a profound And vivid insight Into 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 whatever The
6: poem was
2: about Well done Arthur That was very good
6: So Some of What you're are saying Is
2: I write poetry because, because underneath My mean Callous exterior I really just want To be loved, loved. Is that right? right? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, yes, um, don't we all, you know, deep down, you know? No, you're completely wrong. I just right approach to throw my meaning, can as hard as it's doing a sharp relief, and I'm going to throw you off the ship anyway. Go on! Take the presence of airlock number three and throw them out. <laughs> you can't throw us off into deep space. We're trying to write a book. Resistance is useless. I
1: don't want to die now. I've got a headache. I don't want to go to heaven with a headache. I'll be all cross and I wouldn't enjoy
2: it. You can't do this! Why, why not, not, you creature? Creature? Oh, oh, why not? Why not? Does it have to be a reason for everything? Why don't you just... let's go with a mad impulse? Come on, live a little. Surprise yourself. You Counterpoint the, the, the surrealism, realism,
6: the underlying, underlying metaphor.
2: metaphor.
6: <laughs> That's too good for me.
1: go you brute! Don't worry, I'll think of something.
6: Resistance is useless! I
1: woke up this morning and thought I'd have a most relaxed day. Get a bit of reading, brush the dog. And now it's just after like four in the afternoon, and I'm only being thrown out of an alien spaceship five light years from smoking remains in the Earth. All right, just stop panicking. Who said anything about panicking? This is still just culture shock. you wait till I've settled down in the situation, hold my bearings a bit,
2: then I'll start panicking. Arthur, you've gotten hysterical. Shut up.
6: Resistance is useless.
2: You can shut up as well.
6: Resistance is useless.
2: Give it rest. Do you really enjoy this sort of thing?
6: Resistance is- what do you mean?
2: I mean, does it give you a full, satisfying life? Stomping around, shouting, pushing people out of spaceships?
6: Well, the hours are good.
2: They'd have to be.
6: But now you come to mention it, I, I suppose most of the actual minutes are pretty lousy. Except some of the shouting are quite like. Resistances! you sure,
2: yes, you're good at that, I can tell, but if it's mostly lousy, then why do you do it? What is it, the girls, the leather, the machismo? Well,
6: uh, I don't know. I think I'd just sort of do it, really. There, Arthur,
2: you think you've got problems. Well, yeah, this guy's still half-throttling me. Yeah, but try to understand his problem. Here he is, poor lad, his entire life's work is stomping around, throwing people off spaceships.
6: And shouting. And
2: shouting, sure. And he doesn't even know why he's doing it.
6: Oh, sad. Well, now you put it like that, I suppose.
2: Good lad.
6: But all right. So what's the alternative?
2: Well, stop doing it, of course. Mm.
6: Well, that doesn't sound that great to me.
2: No, wait a minute. Th- that's a start. There's more than that, you see.
6: No, well, I think if it's all the same to you, I'd better just get you both shoved into this airlock, and then go and get on with some other bits of shouting I've got to do. But, but, come on. The, ah, Harold, stop that. Hang on there.
2: It's this music and things to tell you about. Ah.
6: Resisting is useless. See, if I keep up, I can eventually get promoted to senior shouting officer. There are usually many vacancies for non-shouting and non-wishing people about officers, so I think I'd better stick to what I know. But well, thanks for taking an in interest. Bye now.
2: Stop! Don't do it! No, listen, there's a whole world you don't know about! Here, hold this. Da-da-da-dum! Doesn't that stir anything in you? No.
6: Nothing. Bah, I'll mention
2: what you've said to my aunt. Potentially Bright lad. I thought. We're trapped now, aren't we? Um, yes, we're trapped. Well, didn't you think of anything? I thought you were gonna think of something! Oh yes, but unfortunately it rather involved us being on the other side of the airtight hatchway they just sealed behind us. But it was a good idea, was it? Oh yes, very neat. What was it? Well, I hadn't worked out the details yet, but not much point to it now, is there? So what happens next? Well, uh, the hatchway in front of us will open automatically in a moment, and we'll shoot in deep space and asphyxiate in about thirty seconds. So this is it. We're going to die. Yes. Except, no. Wait a minute. What's this switch? What? Where? No, I was only fooling. We're going to die after all.
1: You know, it's at times like this, when I'm trapped in a Vogon airlock with a man from Beetlejuice, and I'm about to die of asphyxiation in deep space that I really wish I'd listened to what my mother used
2: to tell me when I was young. Why? What'd she tell you? I don't know. I never listened. <laughs> Terrific.
5: The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is a truly remarkable book. The introduction starts like this. Space, it says, is big. Really big. You just won't believe how vastly, hugely, mind-bogglingly big it is. I mean, you may think it's a long way down the street to the chemist, but that's just peanuts to space. Listen, and so on. After a while, the style settles down a bit, and it starts telling you things you actually need to know, like the fact that the fabulously beautiful planet Beth Seliman is now so worried about the cumulative erosion caused by 10 million visiting tourists a year, that any net imbalance between the amount you eat and the amount you excrete whilst on the planet is surgically removed from your body weight when you leave, so every time you go to the lavatory there, it is vitally important to get a receipt. In the entry in which it talks about dying of asphyxiation 30 seconds after being thrown out of a spaceship, it goes on to say that, what with space being the size it is, the chances of being picked up by another craft within those seconds are true to the power of 267,709 to one against, which, by a staggering coincidence, was also the telephone number of an Islington flat where Arthur once went to a very good party and met a very nice girl with whom he entirely failed to get off with. Though the planet Earth, the Islington Flat, and the telephone have all been demolished, it is comforting to reflect that they are now in some small way commemorated by the fact that 29 seconds later,
2: Ford and Arthur were rescued. There you are. I told you. I'd think of something. Oh, sure. Broad idea, mine? Find a passion spaceship and get rescued by it? Oh, come on. The chances against it were astronomical. Don't knock it. It works. Now, where are we? Well, I, I hardly like to say this, but it looks like the seafront at South End. Oh, God, I'm relieved to hear you say that. Why? Because I thought I must be going mad. Perhaps you are. Perhaps you only thought I said it. Well, did you say it? Didn't you? Uh, I think so. Well, perhaps we're both going mad. Yes, we'd be mad, all
1: things considered, to think this is South End. Well... Do you think this is South End? Oh, yes.
2: So do I. Therefore, we must be mad. Nice day for it! Who was that? Oh, you mean the, um, man with five heads and the other Bay bush full of kippers. Yes, him. I don't know, just someone. You no, know, if this is South End, there's something very odd about it. You mean the way the sea stays steady as a rock, and the buildings keep washing up and down. Yeah, I thought that was odd.
7: Two to, Two to the, the power, power 100,000 to one against, Dan. Bolly! What was that?
2: Sounds like a measurement of probability. Ooh. Hey, that could me. Been... Nah. What? I'm not sure, but it means we're definitely on some kind of spaceship.
1: South End seems to be melting away. The stars are swirling. Dust ball. Snow. My legs drifting off into the sunset. Hell! My left arm's come off too! How am we going to operate my digital watch now? Ford, you're turning into a penguin. Stop it. Two to the power of 75,000 to one
7: against, and folly. Hey, who are you? What are you? Where are you? What's
2: going on in the zone we're stopping it? Please relax, you are perfectly safe. That's not the point. The point is I am now a perfectly safe penguin, and my colleague here is rapidly running out of limbs.
1: It's all right, I've got them back now. Two to the power of 50,000 to one against, and folly. Admittedly, they're longer than I usually like them, but... Uh...
7: Isn't there anything you feel you ought to be telling us? Welcome to the Starship Heart of Gold. Please do not be alarmed by anything you see or hear around you. You are bound to feel some initial ill effects as you have been rescued from certain death at an improbability level of 2 to the power of 267,709 to 1 against, possibly much higher. We are now cruising at the level of 2 to the power of 25,000 to 1 against and falling. And we will be restoring normality as soon as we are sure what is normal anyway, thank you. 2 to the power of 20,000 to 1 against and falling.
2: Arthur, this is fantastic. We've been picked up by a ship with a new infinite improbability drive. This is really incredible. Arthur, Arthur what's happening? Ford, there, there's an infinite number of monkeys outside. Want to talk to us about the
1: script for Hamlet they've worked out.
5: The infinite improbability drive is a wonderful new method of crossing interstellar distances in a few seconds without all that tedious mucking about in hyperspace. The principle of generating small amounts of finite improbability by simply hooking up the logic circuits of a Bambleweenie 57 sub meson brain to an atomic vector plotter suspended in a strong Brownian motion producer, say, a nice cup of hot tea, were of course very well understood, and such generators were often used to break the ice at parties by making all the molecules in the hostess's undergarments simultaneously leap one foot to the left in accordance with the fear of interdeterminacy. Many respectable physicists said that they weren't going to stand for that sort of thing, partly because it was a debasement of science, but mostly because they didn't get invited to those sort of parties. Another thing they couldn't stand was the perpetual failure they encountered in trying to construct a machine which could generate the infinite improbability field needed to flip a spaceship between the furthest stars, and in the end, they grumbly announced that such a machine was virtually, virtually impossible. impossible. One day, a student who had been left to sweep up the lab after a particularly unsuccessful party found himself reasoning in this way. If such a machine is a virtual impossibility, then it must be, logically, a finite improbability. So all I have to do in order to make one is to work out exactly how improbable it is and then feed that figure into the Finite Improbability Generator, give it a fresh cup of really hot tea, and turn it on. He did this and was rather startled to discover that he had managed to create the long sought after Infinite Improbability Generator out of thin air. It startled him even more when, just after he was awarded the Galactic Institute's Prize for Extreme Cleverness, he got lynched by a rampaging mob of respectable physicists who finally realized that the one thing they really couldn't stand was a smart house. Five
7: to one against stand Falling! Four to one against stand Falling, three to one, two, one. Probability factor of one to one. We have normality, I repeat, we have normality. Anything you still can't cope with is therefore your own problem. Please relax, you'll be sent for soon.
1: Uh, who are they, Julian?
7: Just a couple of guys we picked up in open space. Sector ZZ9, plural Z, alpha.
5: Yeah, well, that's a very sweet thought, Trillian, but do you really think it's wise under the circumstances? I mean, here
2: we are, on the run and everything, we've got the police of half the galaxy after us, and we stopped to pick up hitchhikers. Okay, so ten out of ten for style, but minus several million for good thinking, eh?
6: Oh,
7: Zaphod, they were floating unprotected in open space. You didn't want them to die, did you?
1: Uh, Well, not as such. No, but...
7: Anyway, I didn't pick them up. The ship did all by itself. What?! Whilst we were in improbability drive that's incredible no just very very improbable look don't worry about the aliens they're just a couple of guys i expect i'll send the robot down to check them out hey Marvin
8: i think you ought to know that i'm feeling very depressed oh god
7: well here's something to occupy you and keep your mind off things
8: it won't work you know i have an exceptionally large mind Marvin All what does it you want me to do
7: Go down to number two entry bay and bring the two aliens up here under surveillance.
8: Just that. Yes. I won't enjoy it.
1: She's not asking you to enjoy it. Just do it, will you? Alright, I'll do it. Oh, good, great. Such yeah, yeah, it. Fantastic. Like... Swank.
8: I'm not getting you down, am I?
7: No, no, Marvin. That's just fine, really.
8: I wouldn't like to think I was getting you down.
7: No, don't worry about that. You just act as comes naturally and everything will be fine.
8: You're sure you don't
1: mind? No. No, it's all just a part of life. Life? <laughs> don't
5: talk to me
8: about life.
5: I don't think
7: I can stand that robot much longer, Zaphod.
5: The Encyclopedia Galactica defines a robot as a mechanical apparatus designed to do the work of a man. The marketing division of the Sirius Cybernetics Corporation defines a robot as Your plastic pal who's fun to be with! The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy defines the marketing division of the Serious Cybernetics Corporation as a bunch of mindless jerks who will be first against the wall when the revolution comes, with a footnote to the effect that the editors would welcome any applications for anyone interested in taking over the post of robotics correspondent. Curiously enough, an edition of the Encyclopedia Galactica that fell through a time warp from a thousand years in the future defined the marketing division of the Serious Cybernetics Corporation as a bunch of mindless jerks who were first up against the wall when the revolution came.
2: I think this ship is brand new, Arthur. How can you tell? Have you got some exotic devices for measuring the age of the metal? No, I just found the sales brochure lying on the floor. The universe can be yours and all that. Look, I was right. Sensational new breakthrough in improbability physics. As the ship drive reaches infinite improbability, it passes through every conceivable point in every conceivable universe almost simultaneously. Do select your own re-entry point. Be the envy of every major governments. This is big league stuff looks a hell of a lot better than that
1: dingy Vogon ship. This is my idea of a spaceship, all gleaming white, flashing lights, everything. What happens if I press this button? I I wouldn't. Oh. What happened? A sign lit up saying, please do not press this button again.
2: They make a big thing in the ship's cybernetics, a new generation of serious cybernetics corporation robots and computers, with a new GPP feature. GPP? What's that? Uh, It says Genuine People
8: Personalities. Sounds ghastly. It is. What? Ghastly. It all is. Absolutely ghastly. Just don't even talk about it. Look at this door. All the doors in this spacecraft have a cheerful and sunny disposition. It is their pleasure to open for you and their satisfaction to close again with the knowledge of a job well done.
5: to be of service.
8: Hateful, isn't it? Come on. I've been ordered to take you up to the bridge. Here I am, playing the size of a planet, and they tell me to take you up to the bridge. Call that job satisfaction? Cause I don't.
2: Excuse me, which government owns this ship? You
8: just walked this door. It's about to open again. I can tell by the intolerable air of smugness it suddenly generates. Come on. Thank you, the marketing given of the Sirius Cybernetics Corporation.
2: Uh, which government owns a ship?
8: Let's build robots with genuine people personalities, they said. So they tried it out on me. I'm a personality prototype, you can tell, can't you?
2: Uh,
8: I hate that door. I'm not getting you down, am I?
2: Which government owns a ship?
8: No government owns it. It's been stolen. Stolen? Stolen! Who buy? Zephord for Zephord Beeble
2: Beeblebrooks?
8: I'm sorry, did I say something wrong? Pardon me for breathing, which I never do anyway, so I don't know why I bother to say it. Oh god, I'm so depressed. Here's another one of those self-satisfied duels, life, don't talk
2: to me about life. one even mentioned it. Really, safe all people rocks.
5: To be in service.
2: And news reports brought to you here on the Sub-Etherwave Band, broadcasting around the galaxy, around the clock. And we'll be saying a big hello to all intelligent life forms everywhere, and to everyone else out there, the secret is to bang the rocks together, guys. <laughs> And, of course, the big news story tonight is the sensational theft of the new Improbability Drive prototype ship by none other than Zaphod Beeblebrox. And the question everyone asking is, has the big Z finally flipped? Beeblebrox, the man who invented the Plan Galactic Gargle Blaster, ex-confidence trickster, and part-time galactic president, once described by Centric Columbus as the best bang since the big one, and recently voted the worst-dressed sentient being in the universe for the seventh time running, Has he got an answer this time? We asked his pirate brain-care specialist. gag Heffront. Well look, Zephod's just this guy, you know. What did you turn it off for, Julian?
7: Zephod, I've just thought of something. Yeah? We picked those couple of guys up in Sector. Zephod, please take your hand off me.
6: Oh.
7: And the other one.
1: Okay.
7: Mm. Thank you, and the other one?
1: Uh, I grew that one specially for you, Trillian, you know that? Took me six months, but it was worth every minute.
7: We picked them up in Sector ZZ9, Plural Z Alpha. Does that mean anything to you?
1: On the whole, No.
7: It's where you originally picked me up. Let me show it to you on the screen. Right there.
1: Hey, right! I don't believe it, how the hell did we come to be there?
7: In Probability Drive. We passed through every point in the universe, you know that.
1: Yes, but picking them up there is just too strange a coincidence. I want to work this out. Computer? Hi there! Oh god. god. I want you to know that
4: whatever your problem, I'm ready to help you solve it. Uh, look, I think i was just use a piece of paper. Sure thing, I understand. If you ever need- Shut, Shut up! up. <laughs> okay, okay.
1: Trillian, listen. The ship picked them up all by itself, right? Right. So that already gives us a high improbability factor. They picked them up in that particular space sector, which gives us another high improbability factor. Plus, they were not wearing spacesuits, so we picked them up during a crucial 30-second period.
7: I've got a note of that factor here.
1: Put it all together, we have a total improbability of... Well, that's pretty vast, but it's not infinite. At what point did we actually pick them up?
7: At infinite improbability level.
1: Which leaves us a very large improbability gap still to be filled. Look, they're on their way up here now, aren't they? With that bloody robot... Uh, can we just pick them up on any monitor cameras? I should think so. And then of course I've got this
8: terrible pain in all the diodes down my left side. Is that so? Oh yes, I mean, I've asked for them to be replaced but no one ever listens. Oh
2: god? I, I don't imagine. believe it. Well, well, well. Zephod people, Blocks. I
1: don't believe it! This is just too amazing. Look, Trillian, I'll handle this. Is anything wrong?
7: I think I'll just wait in the cabin. I'll be back in a minute.
1: Oh, this is going to be great. I'm going to be so unbelievably cool about it, it would flummox a vegan snow, is it? This is terrific. What, real cool. Seven million points out of ten for style.
7: Well you enjoy yourself, Zephod. I don't see what's so great myself. I'll go listen for the police on the Sub Eatha Wave Band. Glad right. to be at service. Which is
1: the most nonchalant chetabisc I've been working at.
4: Okay.
5: Glad to be of service.
8: I suppose you'll want to see the aliens now. You want me to sit in a corner and rust, or should I just fall apart where
1: I'm standing? Uh, shut them in please, Marvin.
2: Ford, hi. How are you? Glad you could drop in. Zephard, great to see you. You're looking well. The extra arm suits you. My nice ship you've stolen. You mean you know this guy? Know him? Oh, he's... Oh, Zephard, this is a friend of mine, Arthur Dent. I saved him when his plant blew up. Oh sure, hi. Arthur, glad you could make it. And Arthur, this is mine. My... We've met. What? Oh. Uh. Have we? Hey. What do you mean you've met? This is Zaphod Beeblebrox from Beatrice Five, Not bloody Martin Smith from Croydon. I don't care. We've met, haven't we, Zaphod?
1: Or should I say, Phil? What? You'll have to remind me I have a terrible memory for species. Hey, Ford. It was at a party. I rather doubt it. Cool it, will you, Arthur? A party six months ago on Earth. England.
2: London. The... Uh, um, ah. Islington. Oh, uh... That oh, yeah. party. Right. Say, Fod, you don't mean to say you've been on that miserable little plant as well, do you? No, of course not. <laughs> well, I may have dropped in briefly on my way somewhere. What is all this, Arthur?
1: At this party there was a girl. I had my eye on her for weeks beautiful, charming, devastatingly intelligent, everything I'd been saving myself up for. And just when I'd finally managed to get her to myself for a few tender moments, this friend of yours barges up and says, Hey doll, is this guy boring you? Come and talk to me. I'm from a different planet. I never saw her again. Zephard. Well, yes. He only had the two arms and the one head and he called himself Phil, but- But you
7: must admit that he did actually turn out to be from a different planet, Arthur.
1: Good God, it's her! Trisha McMillian, what are you doing here? Same as you,
7: Arthur. I hitched a ride. After all, with a degree in maths and another in astrophysics, it was either that or back to the doll queue on Monday. Sorry I missed that Wednesday lunch date, but I was in a black hole all morning.
1: Oh god, Ford, this is Trillian. Hi. Trillian, this is my semi-cousin Ford who shares three of the same mothers as me. Hi. Trillian, is this sort of thing going to happen every time we use the infinite improbability drive?
7: Very probably, I'm afraid.
1: See, Ford Beeplebox, this is a very large drink. Hi. Will our heroes
5: be able to enjoy a nice, relaxed evening at last? How will they cope with their new social roles? Will they survive the deadly missile attack which is launched on them three minutes into the next episode? Find out in next week's exciting installment of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy.
2: And that program will be repeated through a time warp on BBC Home Service in
4: 1951. Hi there, this is Eddie, your shipboard computer, and I just wanted to mention here that we are now moving into orbit around the legendary planet of Magrathea. Sorry to interrupt your social evening. Have a good time.
2: He's from Space.
4: Is that so?
2: Is that, is so? that so? I can imagine. I can, I can imagine. imagine. Alright, that's it. The teeth are not we involved in are oral recording. sex.
0: Well, if you're hearing this, it's probably because you've made it through episode two of the Hiptrekers Guide to the Galaxy Powercast. Fit the Second, produced by Not Them Productions, Colin Ghani, directed by Thomas Martinson, script supervisor Thomas Martinson, sound engineer Keith Everson, sound editor Colin Ghani, and final mix by Colin Ghani. This episode produced for Powet by Sean Orange, Ben with the production assistance provided by BatsOrange.com. Join us next week. where Keith, Colin, and Tom. We're going to talk about Fit and the Third. What can I say? They just love talking about their work.
6: Resistance, you Yes, you can. That I can tell.
0: Thanks for listening. Until next time.